Satan has two plans for this world. Plan A is to keep the world in darkness. But what's his plan B? To render believers ineffective in their testimony. We are in Mark chapter 5 this morning as we're continuing in the Gospel of Mark and working our way carefully through it. We are thinking today about Jesus' authority over the demonic realm, but it's simply just another demonstration of the fact that, that He is God, that He has authority and power in every realm of life. But I think this particular passage of Scripture, I'm going to read it here in just a moment, helps us to really focus on something that we don't often give careful thought to. And that is the reality of the spiritual realm that is all around us, that in fact we are a part of. Because we are not simply physical beings. There is that within us which is really us, that's not material, it's not physical at all. It is that spirit that dwells within us. Science hasn't figured that out yet. They can't put it under a microscope or stick it in a test tube. And nobody can really tell, for example, when a person dies, at what moment does that person, that, that spirit, that non-corporeal essence, leave the body. There's still a lot of mysteries that uh, I don't think we're going to have explained to us in this world, but they will become, I believe, evident to us in the world to come. Listen, please, and follow along as I read chapter 5 of Mark, the first 20 verses. Then they came to the other side of the sea, to the country of the Gadarenes. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately there met him out of the tombs a man with an unclean spirit who had his dwelling among the tombs. And no one could bind him, not even with chains, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been pulled apart by him, and the shackles broken in pieces. Neither could anyone tame him. And always, night and day, he was in the mountains and in the tombs, crying out and cutting himself with stones. When he saw Jesus from afar, he ran and worshipped him. And he cried out with a loud voice and said, What have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. For he had said to him, Come out of the man, unclean spirit. Then he asked him, What is your name? And he answered, saying, My name is Legion, for we are many. Also he begged him earnestly that he would not send them out of the country. Now a large herd of swine was feeding there near the mountains. So all the demons begged him, saying, Send us into the swine that we may enter them. And at once Jesus gave them permission. Then the unclean spirits went out and entered the swine. There were about 2,000. And the herd ran violently down the steep place into the sea and drowned in the sea. 
So those who fed the swine fled, and they told it in the city and in the country, and they went out to see what it was that had happened. Then they came to Jesus and saw the one who had been demon-possessed and had the legions sitting and clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. And those who saw it told them how it had happened to him who had been demon-possessed and about the swine. Then they began to plead with him to depart from their region. And when he got into the boat, he who had been demon-possessed begged him that he might be with him. However, Jesus did not permit him, but said to him, Go home to your friends and tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he has had compassion on you. And he departed and began to proclaim in Decapolis, all that Jesus had done for him, and all marveled. Let's pray. Father, give us your wisdom as we look into this portion of your word. Help us to see here these great truths and important lessons that you have preserved for us in your inspired, written word. Father, may these things sink deeply into our hearts and transform us. May we be willing to share the good news of Jesus Christ and the deliverance from sin that He brings to all those around us. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name and for His glory. Amen. the spiritual dimension of life is very, very real. We often don't see that. We're not aware of it, perhaps, as much as we have been in some periods of history. If you look at 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, you discover that Satan is very real. He is a personal being, and he's described as one who, like a lion, prowls about looking for someone to devour. He is presented as a great enemy. In John chapter or for, excuse me, 1 John chapter 4 verses 1 through 6, uh, I'll let you read that this afternoon, but it culminates by saying that greater is he who is in you. That is John is writing to believers and he's referring to the Holy Spirit. Greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Satan is portrayed as the ruler of this world, the ruler of darkness. He's the one who has usurped the position that Adam was originally given as the, the vice-regent of this world. He has, uh, Adam in his sin and rebellion, lost that position, lost that place, lost his fellowship with God, lost his place in paradise. And Satan has been the one who has been trying to control things. But of course his control is limited because God is the ultimate ruler. Greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. In Colossians chapter 1, verses 15 through 18, you'll discover that Jesus is superior to all of those thrones and powers and principalities and dominions. And those are all designations of rank and probably most probably refer to angelic designations angelic ranks God is a God of order 
And when at creation God created the angels, the angelic beings, he created them in rankings, in orders. There's seraphim, there's cherubim, there's, there's various kinds of angelic beings. And we're not surprised then when Satan in his rebellion and was able to lead uh, about a third of the angels with him, we're not surprised then that Satan would decide to keep some kind of order, some kind of organization within his domain, if you will, in order to affect his purposes most efficiently. Jesus, of course, is superior to all of those. In Ephesians chapter 6, and maybe we'll just uh, encourage you to open your Bibles there to that one for just a minute. Ephesians chapter 6, Paul is talking about this spiritual battle that we are engaged in. Beginning at verse 10, he says this, Finally, my brethren, he's been giving a lot of instructions and summarizing a lot of things. And he says, Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. Jesus just simply knew and understood and believed that Satan was a real being, a real creature. He had contact with him there during the, the period of temptation in the wilderness. Jesus affirmed that Satan is very real. Paul here affirms that Satan is very real. In fact, he encourages the believers to prepare for battle against Satan. Put on the whole armor of God, he says. We are not ignorant of his devices. We need to have preparation to be able to stand against the wiles. Some translations have schemes. The schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against, and here it is again, these listings of, of rankings of angels, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. This is a very real situation that is faced by this universe. There is a very real devil, Satan. There are very real fallen angels. We don't have time, or I chose not to take the time this morning, to look at all of the details that are given to us in Scripture. Some of those angels which rebelled against God are bound in, in the abyss, and they will never ever be released. Some that have been uh, rebellious are free and loose in the world. And their desire is to destroy all that God is doing if they possibly can. They don't realize or they don't believe that they're not going to be successful in that, but they keep trying. They keep trying. They lead people into false doctrine. They lead people into immorality. And that's not without our own complicity in the deal. You know, we too are fallen creatures in rebellion against God. And, 
And doing what is wrong is what comes naturally to the unbeliever. And so this host of spiritual wickedness, both by Jesus and by Paul and by John and by Peter and by all of the writers of the New Testament, is understood to be a very real force to be reckoned with. Peter goes on and he says, Take up the whole armor of God, verse 13, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all taking the shield of faith with which you will be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one. That's another reference to Satan. He loves to shoot those fiery darts at us. Take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit. I wish we had more time to talk about that. But understand that you and I are engaged in a spiritual battle. But it's not one that has a clear line of battle drawn on a map. It's, it's more, I guess, like the war on terror. You remember that uh, back in the 90s, and the, or I guess back in the two th- early 2000s? And, and, and we didn't know where the next terrorist was going to strike. We didn't know where they would come from. And, and so it was this global war on terror. Well, there is a global war against the truth of God, against the truth of God's Word, against God's people. We need to be prepared always to deal with that. Jesus, during His ministry, confronted numerous occasions where someone was demon-possessed, someone was under the influence of that evil, wicked force in the world, Satan and his host of demons. You know, there have been a lot of people who have been critics of this. It's, it's, it always amazes me how people can believe in supernatural stuff. You know, they, they look at the horoscopes, they look at the Ouija boards, they, they believe that, you know, there's forces out there Uh, they swallow all that stuff down. But when it comes to believing in Jesus Christ, whom they have not seen, when it comes to believing that there is a real devil who desires to to do damage and harm to this world, well, then they back away from that. Oh, no, that's that's not right. But they'll, they'll buy into whatever other spooky, haunted house kind of stuff appeals to them. Have you ever noticed the inconsistency of that? How can you, how can you express a belief or an acceptance of the spiritual world in one dimension and deny it in another? That makes no sense. But, that's what a lot of people do. Why? Why? Because they're willing to acknowledge 
the spiritual dimension of life, but what they don't want to acknowledge is that God is overall. They don't want to acknowledge truth. They don't want to acknowledge Jesus Christ, who has come from heaven, taken on the form of a man, has lived a life here, has lived a perfect life, has died on the cross for our sin, has been raised from the dead as a justification for our sin, and offers us eternal life. That's too much, but they're willing to accept that evil dimension of the spiritual realm. That shows itself in the critics who try to discount and find fault with this story in the Gospel of Mark. I hope you were able to read the Gospel of Matthew and Luke this week and you discovered that while Mark mentions one, Matthew mentions two demon-possessed men. What in the world is that all about? Is this a mistake? Not at all. I think Matthew, or, uh, Mark and Luke are focusing on the one who seems to be the spokesman, the one who's doing most of the action. There were doubtless two individuals there, both of whom were demon-possessed, but one seemed to take the lead in this interaction. And so Mark and Luke, they do not say that there was only one. They simply focus on the one. Matthew says there were two. The accounts are not in disagreement with one another. Not at all. Of course, then the critics want to complain about the location. And they say, well, you know, in one it says Gadara, and the other one Gadarenes and Gergesenes. And we don't know, you know, so, so Matthew, Mark, and Luke, they can't get their act together, so let's not believe any of it. If you want to disbelieve, any little excuse on the surface will do. But if you check into the history of the area, they're on the east side of the Sea of Galilee, which contained three towns. Gadara, Gersa, and Gadara. Uh, yeah, now I've forgotten all three. Hold on here just a minute. Um, Gersa and Gadara, and the other one I didn't write down, but it's on the map back here in the back. Oh, by the way, this is why these maps are great. You know, you can, you can look at the maps and you can find stuff there, except when you want to find it. <laughs> All three towns are listed, and they're all in this same area, which is called the Decapolis. All right? It's called the Decapolis. Now, they were nearest the shore at Gadara, and they were known as the Gadarenes. That doesn't necessarily mean that both of these men were from that city. Because where does this fellow go after he is delivered of the demons, he goes all through Decapolis. The word Decapolis means the ten cities of which these three were a part. And it's all on that eastern side of the Sea of Galilee and extends down a little bit to the south of the Sea of Galilee. So a little history, a little archaeology, a little checking of maps reveals that there's not a problem here 
there at the city of Gadara, out there near the shore, the hometowns of these two men may not have been that city, but the one certainly went all over his home area, all over the Decapolis, and pronounced the good news of the gospel. It would be like referring to Chambersburg when, you know, that's kind of the, the county seat. And it includes Franklin County. And that includes other towns within Franklin County. So if, for example, if we talk about Washington, we know that we're talking about Washington, D.C., the nation's capital, and all of its environs, all of its suburbs and areas there. We're, we're not speaking inaccurately. We're speaking accurately and in a way that Everybody spoke. There's not a problem with that. But as I say, those who want to discredit the Scriptures will look for something that they can use for their own purposes. That's another way, beloved, that Satan uses to create doubt. Isn't that his first and most frequently used effort what was it that he said to eve when he wanted to begin that process of of tempting adam and eve to rebel against god you remember first thing he said was did god really say really let's create a little doubt here and the critics of the scriptures are following the same pattern as their father, Satan. Let's create a little doubt. Oh, God didn't really say that. He didn't really mean that. Did He really say that? And, and before long, it becomes not just a question to create doubt, but it come, becomes an outright denial because Satan does that in Genesis, doesn't he? Did God really say that? Oh, you will not surely die. There's the denial. So the critics are just taking a page from their model, Satan. Think about the condition, the reality of this poor man. Demon possession was not unknown in the Old Testament, or demon influence at least. There's not a lot of data in the Old Testament. We do have the illustration of King Saul when a troubling spirit came upon him, and that happened as a result of King Saul's disobedience toward God you know God gave him instructions and Saul thought he knew better and didn't follow them and and a troubling spirit came upon Saul from time to time we have the witch of Endor whom Saul eventually consults and she has a familiar spirit that sometimes she's able to make contact with and apparently was able to to know things and reveal some things but it was limited and, and it was kind of, kind of a put-up job in some instances because she did not know that King Saul in disguise was the one who stood before her. Now, if she was a medium, if she was uh, truly uh, one who had insight into all these things, you would have expected her to know that. Used to be a fortune teller out there on Route 30 and I don't know if they're still there or not, but every once in a while, Luann and I would drive by and their light would be on and everything, and I'd say, well, I guess whatever her name was, Miss Judy or something, I don't know, 
I guess she knows we're not going to stop, and uh, we'd keep on going. You know, Satan, the demons, are certainly able to fool many people. They certainly are. But they do not have omniscience. They do not have omnipotence. They do not have all of the things that God has because they are not God. They are not equal to God. They can fool people like the witch at Endor, but they don't have the truth. Of course, there was King Ahab. King Ahab was a man who was rebellious against God. And as a judgment, God allowed an evil spirit to influence Ahab and to deceive him and to lead him into battle where Ahab himself was killed. It was a judgment of God against him. I have four scriptures listed there in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Chronicles and Psalms that illustrate the fact that demonic worship was experienced there in Israel much to God's anger and dismay and to the destruction ultimately of God's people they were led astray by these demons to to worship false gods so it was something that was not unknown in the Old Testament but was demon possession in the Old Testament like we see it in the pages of the gospel I don't think so I don't know for sure but it seems to be a little different quality but in the pages of the New Testament and particularly the Gospels we see that there are individuals who are actually possessed by an evil spirit we don't have a lot of detail into how this happened they come onto the scene and they're already in this pitiable condition but let me offer just a warning. Just a warning. Never, ever dabble in the things of the occult. Now, it is not possible for a genuine believer to be possessed of a demon. Why? Because you are possessed of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit of God dwells within you. When you come to know Jesus Christ as your Savior, Ephesians chapter 1 tells us that we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. We are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. He comes and He makes His dwelling with us. And there's no way that light and darkness are going to coexist. No way. That bumper sticker that you see around town every so often is, is, is stupid. Light and darkness cannot coexist. What happens at your house at nighttime when you walk into a room and you turn on the light switch? The darkness is gone instantly, isn't it? It's not a slow process. You know, it's not like the light just sort of starts to come on and it works hard and hard and it gets, you know, the, the circle of light gets bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh-uh, that's not it at all. Instantly, the room is illuminated. Now, if you have a 15-watt bulb in there, it's not going to be very bright. But, but you see the point. Darkness and light do not and cannot coexist. So when Jesus encounters these individuals, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all mention uh, that Jesus cast out demons, that darkness and light cannot coexist. 
demons can influence Christians. One of the ways in which they do that is to introduce false doctrine into the church. False doctrine. To derail God's people. I've, I've said for years that Satan has two plans for this world. Plan A is to keep the world in darkness. To keep people from coming to the truth of the gospel. Plan B he implements when plan A fails. And praise God, plan A fails many, many, many times. You know, people come to know Christ as their Savior. But what's his plan B? To render believers ineffective in their testimony. To derail them in some way. To get them off somehow, some way. Away from the truth. Away from conforming to the Word of God. And Christians need to be on the alert. We need to be aware. That's why Paul says, put on the whole armor of God. That's why we have these warnings in Scripture from Peter and others. That listen, Satan is looking for somebody to devour. Don't be that somebody. Put your armor on. Use that sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Take care of what you allow your mind to focus on. Take care with what you let into your life and those influences that come. Because, beloved, there is nothing that is neutral. It is either moving us toward a greater and more intimate and closer relationship with Jesus Christ, or it is moving us away. Don't be fooled. Now, Let's think about this fellow. He was breaking chains. He was endowed with tremendous power. Superhuman power, if you will. It was something that was happening night and day. There was no relief. There was no relenting in this. He was crying and cutting himself. It was self-destructive. And it was miserable. Absolutely miserable. But he recognized that Jesus was God. You know, even the demonic realm recognizes the truth. It's only human beings that try to deceive themselves. I, I think of the atheist who works so hard to deceive himself or herself that there is no God when the evidence is all around them and even within them. Because Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God's put eternity in the hearts of men. We know instinctively. It's like being hardwired to know that there is a God. The demons know it. They were there at creation. When God created this terrestrial ball and brought the whole universe, they were there. They were the first things that God created. They were created as angels, as, as bright messengers of God, but they then later rebelled. They know. They know the truth and refuse. They refused the truth. 
they have no option for salvation. They have no option for release, for forgiveness, because they rebelled against the very face of Almighty God. They came to worship, though unwilling. You know, Scripture says that one day every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, and this to the glory of God the Father. Every unbelieving person will eventually confess that yes, Jesus Christ is Lord, but it will be too late. It will be too late. Just as it is for the demons. They know, they confess, they worship, but there is no salvation for them. And if we in this life continue on in our rebellion against God and we meet death in a state of rebellion against God, guess what? Your knee will bow and your tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord just before you are consigned to eternity in the lake of fire, right along with the devil and his angels. Don't hesitate, beloved, in coming to Christ. You were made to worship your Creator. You were not made to rebel against Him. You were made to worship. They recognize that there's a future judgment, don't they? Notice it says, um, verse 7, what have I to do with you, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God that you do not torment me. They know what's coming. They know there's a judgment. They know that there's going to be an ultimate separation of themselves from the very presence of their Creator. They know that they're going to be locked in forever with their own wickedness. And they don't want that. But that is their lot. You know, sometimes we mess around with sin because we think it's what we want. It's glitzy, it's glamorous, it looks nice, it looks fun. Satan's no fool. Well, he is a fool because he's trying to deny that God is there. But when it comes to temptation, he's no fool. He knows not to show up with a tail and pitchfork and horns. We'd recognize him. No, he comes with glittery glamorous things things that look good things that promise wonderful stuff what was it he said to eve when you eat that fruit you're going to be like god he made it sound wonderful and so we take the bait we take what looks wonderful and then we find out that it's not so great that's the problem with temptation it looks good at the beginning. And we as Christians are not above temptation, are we? What's Satan's plan B? To get us sidetracked? So what does he do? He puts some temptations in our path to lead us in the wrong direction. And sometimes we get what we want, but then we discover that we don't want what we get. And that is certainly true of these demons. They wanted to rebel against God. They thought maybe that they could overthrow Him, that they didn't have to listen to Him and His authority and do His bidding. And so they got a little bit of freedom, if you will, 
Satan's walking about the earth like a roaring lion. He's the prince of the power of the air. He's kind of running things the way he wants to here for a while, all within the parameters that God has set, but he's trying to do his own thing. But he's not going to want what he ultimately gets, and that's the lake of fire. No demon is going to want that either. Here they say, have you come to torment us? They plead for mercy. Isn't that interesting? How much mercy did they have on the man who was demon-possessed? They had no mercy on him. You see, that's the thing about Satan and his horde. They promise wonderful things, tempting things, and when they get their hooks in you, you don't want it, and they show no mercy. What hypocrisy that they should plead for mercy without showing mercy. I remember a parable that Jesus told similar to that, don't you? Of these two fellows that owed their master a tremendous debt. One of them was a debt so huge it could have never been repaid. The other was a smaller debt. But they, they were forgiven. And the guy that owned the huge debt, he went out and he found a fellow slave that owed him just a paltry sum of money. And what? He had no mercy. And so the king, or the rich man, when he found out, had that unmerciful servant thrown into prison. Learn the importance of consistency, of mercy. Learn the dangers of hypocrisy and that double standard. What does Jesus do in this? Very simple. Very clear and straightforward. A simple command. Come out of the man, you unclean spirit. There's no incantations. There's no mumbo-jumbo. There's no abracadabra. There's none of that stuff. Jesus, in his absolute authority as God in the flesh, says to that leech, oh, by the way, the guy, the fellow, when he is asked of Jesus what his name is, he replies, legion, for we are many. There were about 6,000 soldiers in a Roman legion, plus officers. If he's being literal, that's a lot of demons possessing one individual. If it's just kind of hyperbole that there's a whole bunch of us here, but not maybe exactly 6,000, still, the man's position, his condition is pitiable. It's miserable. It's horrible. Well, Jesus, with that simple command, causes those demons to depart. They go in to a herd of pigs. And what happens to these poor animals? I think they're driven insane, however much sanity a pig might have to start with. But they destroy themselves. They go down, run down over the side of the hill, and I guess it must have been steep enough right there at the seashore. Went right down over it, and they all drowned in the Sea of Galilee. Now, 2,000 pigs floating in the water is a pretty disgusting sight, I would think not seen it myself, but I can just kind of imagine that that would 
not be a pleasant experience. And it absolutely shocked the people around them. The people, the pig herders, went and told folks. They went to the local communities, the local towns, the surrounding area and villages. And they said, man, look, guess what happened? We were out there doing our thing with the pigs, and, and all of a sudden this wild man, we've seen him before, he confronts this guy named Jesus, and, there's this, and all of a sudden our pigs run down into the water. And the guy is sitting there, listening to Jesus, talking to Jesus. Well, that drew a crowd. And it may have been, you know, some time, a couple of hours until word spreads and people come. This wasn't done in 30 seconds. And so a crowd gathers and they're all there. And they, they hear the story and they see the pigs floating in the water and they see the man sitting and he's clothed now. He had been naked before. He's got clothes on. And, and he's in his right mind the insanity is gone. And he's listening to Jesus. And what do they do? They start saying, hey, this is great. That guy's been delivered and we can walk around here now without fear. Is that what they do? No. They're terrified. They're afraid. Why? Because they too are given over to evil. They're not demon-possessed. But they don't want to submit to God. They don't want God there. That's the universal response to holiness, is fear, trembling, and aversion to it. Go away. We don't, we don't want holiness here. We don't want righteousness here. Because we are of the dark. We are of, of Satan. We are of the world and its standards and and we don't want god we don't want holiness go away go away so they're trying to get jesus to leave but this man whose name we do not know has been delivered i suspect probably the other fellow too but here is this one sitting at the feet of jesus and when jesus says it's time to leave he says to the man, go home and tell your friends. I can understand why this guy wanted to hang out with Jesus. I would have too. I mean, Jesus just had, had delivered this man from absolutely the worst situation that anyone could ever be in. And, and his love for the Savior, his desire to know Jesus better, his desire to to devote his life to Jesus' service must have been intense. All for good reasons. But Jesus says, no, you go home and you tell your friends. It, it, it was too much. The miracle was too much. The deliverance was too much for all the people around to comprehend and grasp. They were terrified of Jesus. But here, this one guy who had been delivered by Jesus could go and talk with his friends. And the Word of God would be able to penetrate in a way that wasn't quite so terrifying. When you got saved, why didn't Jesus just simply take you home to be with Him? You know, right, right out of the world. Just think of all the, 
misery you might have missed out on. <laughs> you know? I was eight years old when I was saved. In the last however many years, you can do the math, 50 plus. There's been a couple times when it's like, Lord, I wish I was already with you. <laughs> I wish I didn't have to put up with this foolishness. So why did God leave any of us here after salvation? For this very reason. Right here. Go home and tell your friends what amazing things God has done for you. You say, wait, man. I wasn't demon-possessed. I, I don't have a story like this. This is not my testimony. Well, that's true. But your testimony is your testimony. And God will use it. Whatever it is. It, it may be kind of like mine. You know, I was saved as a kid. So I don't have that long list of debauched life that God forgave me of. But God forgave me of a whole bunch of stuff. And, and I can give testimony to that. And I can testify that I am so thankful that God kept me out of things when I was wanting to be really stupid and pursue wrong directions. Sometimes God intervened and kept me from that. We all have a testimony of some deliverance by Almighty God from our own self-destructive patterns. And God would have us to take that testimony and use it for His glory, just like this guy. That's why we're still here. That's why we're salt and light. We're called that in the Scriptures. We're to be preservative in the world in which we live. We're to expose the darkness around us. You ever notice that when you walk into a room at work or someplace that, you know, maybe people's behavior changes. Maybe their language changes. Maybe something changes. Why? Simply because you, as one who is indwelt by the Spirit of God, who has Jesus Christ as your Savior, simply because you walk into the room and light and darkness cannot coexist. And you've been an influence in their lives. So Jesus would say to us today exactly what He said to this fellow. Go home to your friends. Tell them what great things the Lord has done for you and how He has had compassion on you. I think that's one of the biggest lessons for us today. Share your faith. Share what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And even as a Christian, how you have walked with the Lord for lo these many years, and how you have seen God at work in your life, how He has carried you through these hardships and trials, and how He has caused you to, to have a deeper faith because of it. Share that! Because there might be a brand new Christian who's thinking, man, I don't know how I can do this. I don't know how I can face this. I don't know how I can live this kind of a life. And you can come alongside and you can say, dear brother, dear sister, let me encourage you. Let me help you. Let me tell you what God has done in my life as He and I have walked together. That's what God wants for us. That's what God intends for us to do. Let's pray. Heavenly Father,
There's a lot more we could have looked at in this passage of Scripture this morning, but I pray that these things are helpful and beneficial to all of us and that they are praiseworthy toward You. Lord Jesus, You are the great Deliverer. The One who sets us free from sin and from death. You are the One who transforms lives and gives us our right mind. A mind that is fixed upon You. A mind that has been cleansed by Your Spirit. Lord, help us to be aware of the wiles, the schemes, the traps of the evil one. Help us to live a godly life using the weapons that You've provided for us. The Word of God, which is the sword of the Spirit. The helmet of salvation. The fact that as a believer, we know that we are Your children. And the breastplate of righteousness. Lord, help us to live holy lives so that we might not give the the devil a foothold, a place to grab onto us. Lord, help us to be girded about with the belt of truth. That truth would characterize our lives each and every day. To have the shoes of the gospel of peace that we can share it with those around us as we go about our daily tasks. Lord, use us as Your servants to dispel the darkness, to bring light and truth and life into the world of which we are a part. Thank You, Father, for Your goodness to us. and We pray this all in Jesus' precious name. Amen.